Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, we are going to begin a new study in God's word this morning. I'm excited about it. We are going to start the gospel according to Matthew. So uh, if you would please open up to the book of Matthew chapter one. Now, by way of introduction. Okay, I just have to preface this. I'm planning to get through verse 17. <clears throat> Realistically, we'll be lucky if we get out of verse one. Okay, so we're going to begin this new study, but by way of introduction, according to the early church fathers, the author of the book of Matthew is one of the 12 disciples, and his name was Matthew, otherwise called Levi. And we're introduced to Matthew in, in Matthew, actually chapter nine, uh, which tells us that Matthew was a tax collector, uh, which was frowned upon. It was one of those professions that was jumped in and, and, and put into the category with prostitutes and sinners. And so not highly looked upon. Now, what's interesting to note is during the time of Matthew's life here, while it was being written, Romans had already occupied Israel or Palestine, that area, uh, for over a half a century, 60 years or somewhere around there. And they'd imposed a very oppressive tax system uh, upon the Jews. And, and what would happen is Rome would grant the right to collect taxes from this occupied territory to the highest bidder. So they put it up for auction and someone could go ahead and like senators and all these well-to-do people would bid on it. And whoever won got to receive the taxes from that area for a period of about five years. Well, in turn, what they did is then they hired locals to go ahead and collect the taxes and these tax collectors were despised because they were viewed obviously as ultimate traitors, right? So you are collecting money from us for our enemies to perpetuate this occupation. And so it's, it was a very uh, hated uh, group of people. And often before they were hated even beyond that, because not only would they collect those taxes, then they would go ahead and collect more taxes than they needed to collect. They would collect beyond taxes. And so there would be this heavy taxation and they would live lucrative lives off of the people. And so as there's this class of people called publicans, and that's what they were called publicans and they were hated. And Matthew was one of these guys. That's who he was. We don't know whether he was one of the ones who abused the system or not. It uh, doesn't say, but let's just say he had friends in low places. And in chapter nine, verse nine, Matthew is sitting in his tax booth and Jesus sees him and walks up to him and says, uh, and, and he, he sees him and walks to him and said, follow me. He walks up to this trader of the nation, this tax collector and says, follow me. And it says that Matthew rose and followed Jesus. And apparently he threw a party for Jesus and uh, with a bunch of his other tax collectors and said, Hey, look at, look at who I'm now following and serving. I'm leaving the business and, and look at this guy. And this enraged, enraged the uh, Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. They hated the fact that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And, and, and Matthew and another is another example, basically, of God's grace, God's grace to reach down to us in our situation, in our society, whatever the social outcast is. Jesus reaches into those situations and calls people out of darkness into light. And Matthew is an example of God's grace. And Matthew left all that day and he followed Jesus Christ. 
And we know that Matthew was one of the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus to be his witness, uh, one of his witnesses. And I think it's important to remember, remember this fact that actually Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus's life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. He was an eyewitness to it all. If you remember in the God in the first letter that John wrote, the epistle for first uh, John chapter one, verse two, John is, he says, Hey, listen, this is what we, and I think he's talking about the apostles. This is what we all experienced. First John chapter one, verses one and two. He says that, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the father and was made manifest to us. And so what John is saying there is that, listen, we've heard Jesus Christ, the son of God, the one who's eternal, the one that came down from heaven. We've heard him. We've seen him with our own eyes. And then when it says looked upon, you're going, well, you just said you saw him. It means to study intensely. It's not just a, uh, we've seen him. It's we've, we've understand him. We've been around him. We've inspected him. We've marveled at him. And, and not only that, we've touched him. We physically touched him. This isn't some, you know, spiritual being that came down that just appeared and disappeared and all this type of stuff. No, he actually had a body. He had a form. We've touched him. We've handled him. Jesus is a real person. And John says there in verse two, that this is what we testify and proclaim to you. This is what the apostles did. We're proclaiming to you what we've experienced. That the, the eternal life that was with the father was manifested to us. And we're proclaiming him to you. And John says, we are proclaiming Jesus to you. And that includes Matthew. We, the 12, right? Well, minus Judas, add Matthias. Uh, for those of you who want to be technical, but church history tells us that Matthew went on to minister in modern day Iraq. And let me say that the mission field there is not very easy today. Guess how it was back then uh, as well. And then he also went to Ethiopia. He went down to Ethiopia and actually in the city of uh, Nevada, uh was where he eventually was nailed to the ground by short spears. They nailed his his you know, arms and legs to the ground with short spears. And then they beheaded him with an ax. So Matthew heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He had the teaching. He saw him resurrected and his life reflected it. And that he went and proclaimed the gospel and even lost his life. And the end was martyred, but actually gained it. We know this, but before Matthew was martyred, he penned this gospel and it is absolutely magnificent. You know, when I study uh, the scriptures, how many of you study the scriptures and you're just kind of confused by it? Uh, just, okay. Couple nods and most of you are masters at all this. I, I, it takes me forever to understand stuff. I have to sit there and read it and read it, read it. And I'm looking for patterns. What I'm looking for is I'm trying to get into the mind of who wrote it. And I know it's the Lord who wrote it, but he wrote through a person, right? So what are they thinking and how they're communicating? You know, when I put together like my messages, I put them in a certain word and there's a thought flow and I only, I get it. Uh, but <laughs> I know, but but Matthew has a, has a, has a way of how he arranged the actual scripture. You know, when I start studying something, one of the helpful resources, I go to a lot of resources to figure out like all these types of things, the themes, the books and all this kind of stuff. But one of the uh, simple, like, I think it's almost childish. It's awesome. It's, it's called the Bible project. 
And so you go to the Bible project. I love the Bible project. And you go there and you can click on the overview of Matthew. So I'm plagiarizing right here. I just want you to know I'm just taking from the Bible project because it makes sense. And it's a very clear outline of the book of Matthew. So as we look at the outline of the book of Matthew, how it's arranged, when we look at how something is arranged, it helps us know what is being said. If that helps you out. So if you're taking notes this morning and I hear those pens clicking, um, the book of Matthew is divided into 28 chapters, 28 chapters. Let that sink in everybody. What is that in church time? What is that in Sunday mornings? I know you're all wondering, like <laughs> then when football has a two minute warning left, we know it's at least another 20 minutes, but I mean, yeah, 28 chapters and Matthew has arranged his gospel in such a way that it serves the purpose to communicate the themes that God inspired him to communicate. One of the many resources again is the Bible project. And this is the outline kind of from there. And so one of the overarching themes, and this isn't from the Bible project. One of the overarching themes of the, of the book of Matthew is the kingdom of God. That's one of the ideas, the kingdom of God, and not only the kingdom of God, the king of the kingdom of God, that is specifically the, the, the focus there, the Messiah. And so, you know, focusing upon Jesus. So if you're looking at the theme, the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom of God, the Messiah, who is the ruler of God's people. But now as far as the structure of the book, there's an intro and an, and, 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 and a conclusion, an extra, right? Um, the intro is in chapters one through three and the, and the way out is, is chapters 26 through 28. In chapters one through three, it serves as an introduction to the major themes of the book. And we're going to see these. I'm not going to go through all of them right now, but we'll see in the first few chapters that Matthew is going to connect the dots of Jesus being the promised Messiah. That's very important. Does he actually have validity in being the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? There has to be you know, Matt's going to build the case, Matthew, sorry, took license there. Matthew is going to build the case that through his lineage from Abraham and David, through his genealogy, that Matthew, that, that Jesus is in fact of royal descent. He is the Messiah through Joseph's line. And that's what the first 17 verses are, are there. And also he talks about fulfilling the prophecy. So that's where he's starting off the introduction. Jesus is legit. He's a legitimate king. That's his point there. And so those first three chapters really are the origin story of the king. And then at the end, if you go flip back to the end, chapter 28 through 30, we see the king makes all this a reality. He makes the new covenant. He jumps into the, uh, in chapter 28 uh, is this last night, basically. And, and you, you jump into the upper room and he is instituting the new covenant. And then he actually gets arrested and dies and rise again. And so that actually the kingdom is solidified there. But in between these chapters, there's five major groups. And I think there's a connection between the book of Moses and that, but five major groups, there's gonna be five sections in between the intro and the extra. And those, those are chapters four through seven is the first section. And what's interesting is that um, by the way, he'll the, in these five sections, he'll go ahead and give a, maybe a, a story or there'll be some kind of narrative, but at the end of those or a good chunk of towards the end of each one, there's a big block teaching. So story, big teaching, story, big teaching, story, big teaching, story, big teaching. And that's how Matthew arranges the book. It's pretty interesting. So in chapters four through seven, uh, 
which announces the kingdom of God, we're going to see Jesus's sermon on the Mount following that announcement of the kingdom of God. That's the teaching part. So, uh, Chapters four through seven announces the kingdom of God. Chapters eight through 10 highlight nine stories about the impact of the kingdom on various people, nine stories. So he introduces the kingdom and then he's going to show how God's kingdom impacted nine different people. And then at the end of that second section in chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 and teaches them what to do, how to do what he just did. Okay. And then in chapters 11 through 13, that third section, this speaks of how people respond to the Messiah. You got some people accepting some people kind of wishy-washy and some people rejecting him outright like the Pharisees. And then in chapter, and then Jesus does a parable teaching on examples of all three types of those people there in chapters 13 chapter 13. Then in chapters uh, 14 through 20, that fourth section speaks about the people's expectations regarding the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? And everybody's got an opinion about that, right? Some were looking for a military leader. Some were looking uh, for certain events to be fulfilled, signs and wonders, but Jesus came as a suffering servant, right? And so there were expectations about Jesus, about the Messiah, about the kingdom of God. And so at the end of that segment in chapter 20, Jesus teaches on the kingdom, not being what they expected. The way up is down. The way down is up. The greatest is the least forgiving instead of enacting vengeance to gain. We're called to give. And Jesus starts speaking about the kingdom. It's not what you expect. It's what I say. It is. This is the kingdom that's come to you. Then in chapters 21 through 25, and this is going to be exciting. He speaks about the tension between the two kingdoms. Jesus, it begins with Jesus busting into the temple and flipping over the tables, the flat out assault on his father's house. And Jesus start you. So we see the tension actually culminating there. Jesus cleanses the temple. He challenges the leadership, calls them all hypocrites. And he lays into the Pharisees with teachings. And he he does that teaching on woes, woe, 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 woe is you. And he lays all these things out. And then he teaches his disciples about his impending death. He says, I'm going to die at the hands of these people. It's not what you expect either. I'm going to die. I'm going to be at the hands of this leadership. And then I will be resurrected. And he teaches them about the future of Israel. And this is where you get into the apocalyptic literature. And he talks about the overarching view of everything. And he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to rule and I'm going to reign. And then again, we hit the conclusion in 26 through 28. The book ends to the, uh, with God in, in Matthew's gospel. And we come to the Passover meal and he sits there with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he puts the new picture, the new idea of what the, of what this meal is about, the true meaning of the, of the Passover, that it is his body that is broken. It is his blood is spilled, that he is the lamb that is slain, that delivers Israel from his sin. He is the deliverer. He is the King. And he is going to die to save them from their sins. And he will rise again on the third day and he will return. And it ends with Jesus there in chapter 28 risen and teaching the great commission. Here's that last teaching section. He comes up and says, now you go into all the world. And I'm coming back by the way, and I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I am with you always God with us. And so that's a quick outline of, I know you guys all retained all that stuff. And so it's just a sweeping view of the kingdom of God. And there's a lot in there that we're going to learn. 
God's going to teach us if our hearts are open. The church, you know, it's not so much, you know, we're, we have information, but we want to, we love the Lord and he's showing us who he is and why he is and, and, ha- and God's plan from the beginning, from the beginning of time of him coming into our world and how that came about. And so Jesus is deeper than any ocean. If we would just look and gaze, God will teach us. He'll open our hearts to things we've never seen before. He'll soften the religion of our hearts and dig deep and give us new waters that flow in our hearts and lives. So pray and ask God to have open hearts as we go through this. Ask him to open the eyes of your heart to give you understanding as I am when I'm teaching. Give me understanding, Lord. Let me know you. Let me see you more fully. Don't leave me in the second grade understanding of who you are. There's more. This is where Christians go to die. When we think we've got it all, we know him like uh, we're done. And then we just get religious. No, let his living water cleanse us and fill us and, and show us who he is. And so with that quick outline, let's begin our study of the book of Matthew by reading the genealogy of Jesus. I'll read the first 17 verses so I can say that we went through it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nisan and Nishan, the father of Salmon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, the Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah and Abijah, the father of Asaph and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram and Joram, the father of Uzziah and Uzziah, the father of Jotham and Jotham, the father of Ahaz and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh and Manasseh, the father of Amos and Amos, the father of Josiah and Josiah, the brother of Jeconiah and his brothers. And at the time of the deport at the, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel uh, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel, the father of uh, Abiud and Abiud, the father of Eliakim and Eliakim, the father of Azor and Azor, the father of Zadok. And, and Zadok, the father of Akim and Akim, the father of Eliud and Eliud, the father of Eleazar and Eleazar, the father of, of Mathan and Mathan, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is also called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David, to de- the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, to be honest, how many of you are not too thrilled when you come across genealogies in the Bible? Come on now. How many of you kind of just go and -and so-and-so begat (laughs) and you just get right over it, right? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I used to do that, but I'm not going to go extremely in depth on this, but this is an over te- old Testament survey is what you have there. 
But I, I do want us to understand why the genealogy is here. I think that's important as we start, because if we look at the first verse, it gives us a hint. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, many of us that that's okay. That's great. Um, nothing significant in the first verse, not that we don't love the Lord, um, but you know, let's move along kind of a thing. But why is that there? Why does he start off with that first verse? This is significant. If you remember in, if you know, if you were a Jew in Matthew's day, and you read this, your ears would have just perked up when you heard these are the generations of, or these are the genealogies of those are code words. It's like the beginning of a song lyric that, you know, they would have gone ding and their minds would have connected to the old Testament in specific, the very beginning of Genesis where all this kind of stuff starts. And, and that reason, the, the phrase, the book of the gene, genealogies or some of your translations render it, the book of generations. This is familiar because it, Moses, this is how Moses arranged the, the first five books of the old Testament. If you look at uh, like, just as, uh, just as Matthew arranged his, his scriptures in a certain way, uh, Moses arranged the old Testament, the first five books of the old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, in a certain way. And he didn't have chapters and verses. Those were added later by someone for our study benefit. The way the original writer divided his chapter, so to speak, was by generations of people. That's pretty important. And so Moses didn't organize his writing in chapters, but Moses' chapters were organized by genealogies. And someone reading would, knowing a Jew reading the, reading this would instantly connect to that just as they would in the very first verse of John's gospel. When he says in the beginning was the word in the beginning. What do we think of in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. And John does it on purpose to connect you back to the beginning. And so what, what Matthew and John and everybody are doing is going, Jesus is deeply connected to the old Testament. He is actually the, He's the reason for the old Testament and he is the fulfillment of everything that was prophesied in the old Testament. This, the old Testament is God's plan to reveal his son, to save the world, to glorify himself. It's amazing. And so there are these, these are the generations of immediately connected to the Jews of Genesis flip with me. If you would tell Genesis chapter two, verse four. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter two, verse four. There's a lot there. I won't get into it. I want to, but I won't. But it says there in Genesis chapter two, verse four. What do you read? What does it say? You can answer. Right. Something to the effect of these are the generations of, or these are the, is the genealogy of, and this is, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the, in the day that the Lord God had made the heavens and the earth. It's the origin story of the earth. And it goes on to explain how man was created. Now flip, flip over to verse five. I mean, chapter five, sorry. Chapter five. What does it say? Yeah, this is the book of the genealogies of Adam. 
Now you keep going. It goes on to explain Adam's descendants, where they all came from. Adam came from the earth. His descendants came from Adam. Now we keep going. How about chapter six, verse nine? These are the generations of who? Of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so this is how Moses wrote his, the old Testament by genealogies of Adam, of Noah, of Ish, uh, of uh, Shem, the son of Noah, of Terah, then of Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Levi, the priests and the sons of Aaron, even in Ruth, you have genealogies. There's actually 50 of these types of things all throughout the old Testament. And, and it's so significant. And the significance of all this is that the Jews were meticulous record keepers. They were meticulous record keepers in their genealogies all the way back to the beginning because they were tribes and who they were was tied to who they were born to and their role within society was tied to their tribe. And certain tribes could do certain things while others couldn't. For example, all the tribes inherited land except for the Levites. The Levites did not inherit any land because they were the priests and only Levites could be priests. How did you know if you were a Levite? They kept all the records. They had all the records of whoever was whoever. Pretty amazing, isn't it? So it's important to the Jews while we look at it and we just jump over it. Now, what we, what's interesting is that it, it, knowing who you are connects you to your inheritance, Right. We all, we all can relate to that. Who is our parent and how do you, re, you know, what's, where we inherited land or all that type of stuff, but also the roles. And so that we had the priests, but you also had the Kings in their lines, but more significantly than all of this is that they knew who the Messiah would come through. The one who would rule and deliver Israel once and for all time. Over all these genealogies and all this stuff, they knew that it was coming through a certain person or a certain group of people. The Messiah was promised to come through Abraham. Well, guess what? All the Jews were from Abraham, correct? You got the 12 tribes coming from the Jews. Well, well, which one? And, and, and then he says later, uh, well, we'll real, quick, real quickly, in verse one, it's pointing out Abraham was later promised to be the descendant of David. I mean, sorry, David was, was later the, I'm sorry. I got to read my notes, not say this Jew. Uh, the idea was that the Messiah was promised to come through Abraham and then later David. Does that make sense? Coming through Abraham and then David, and then a the son of David, the Messiah would come through him. That's the point. And this is significant to the Jews and to us mentioning that Jesus is a son of Abraham and a son of David. If you remember back going to Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, Jesus establishes, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. He says, listen, it's through you that I'm going to bless everybody. It's through you. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. And then as that revelation progresses, he goes on and says through your offspring, through your offspring. It's not through Ishmael. It's through Isaac. And actually he's talking about offspring in singular. And it's not even through Isaac. If you read Galatians chapter uh, Galatians chapter three, verse 16, we find out where it says, Paul is saying, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. It's not plural. It's singular. 
referring to many offsprings, but referring to one particular person, one offspring. It is through you that offspring that the nations will be blessed. It's kind of veiled. It's kind of hidden, but it's talking about one person who's going to come. The Jews know that's talking about the Messiah. The focus is not on Abraham. It's not on Isaac. It's not on Jacob. It's not even on the Jews. So to speak, it is on the one who's coming through the Jews. That is the whole story of the old Testament. You wonder why think people are left out and why certain women aren't mentioned or why all this type of stuff, because that's not the story. The story is this one man that is going to come through all the way from Adam, all the way to come up on planet earth. It's about Jesus. And so Matthew is zeroing in on the fact that Jesus in fact fulfilled, not only the promise to Abraham, it's called the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, we're going to get into story stuff. This is all technical right now, but bear with me. But secondly, not only to Abraham, but to David, to David, to King David, Jesus is called the son of David. Verse one, look again. He says, if you look at God's covenant with David, basically he says, he's the son of David, King David in second Samuel's verse seven, starting in verse 11 through 17, the prophet Nathan speaks to David. I'll read it for you. It says, moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house, you a house, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish their kingdom. What does it say? His kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is where it gets interesting. He says, and I will be a father. Uh, I will to be to him, a father, and he shall be to me, his uh, a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with, with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now what's happening there is the Lord is weaving back and forth between David's descendants and between the Messiah. There's, there's the physical descendants of David, which will sin. And then there's the Messiah who actually bear their sins. And so you've got to know that it's through his lineage that one is going to come that will never be off the throne. That's the point. So Abraham and David are two towering, towering figures as Jews, totally revered. And Jesus is of direct lineage from then royal lineage is Matthew's point here. And so how do you prove that you go to the records and you point out, listen, here's the trail from Jesus all the way to these important men. And by the way, this is through Joseph. It's important to note at this point, that this lineage is through Joseph's line. And you'd go, well, that kind of throws things to the side because he's not blood relative of Joseph. No, he's not because Joseph wasn't his father, but he was legally of his descendant. And that's the point. He is legally connected through Joseph to the line. Luke's gospel deals with Mary. He's blood connected. And so that's why you have two different deals. And actually what you see, I know I'm getting technical again. 
Um, maybe the whole thing's technical. As you're going down, it divides at David in the, in, in the lineages, both of these Luke's and Matthew's genealogies. When you get to uh, David, it starts spiraling off through Nathan, one of David's other sons. That's who's Mary's connected to. And then as you go the other way, you're going through Solomon, which is what Matthew's connected. So Jesus is connected any way you cut it. He's connected to the throne. That's the point. And so what you see here is that Jesus is the Messiah. So Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus is the royal and legal lineage to the throne of Israel. Israel. So starting with Abraham in verse two, that's right. We're in verse two. Let's kick it up a notch, huh? Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of who Judah and his brothers. Why are we mentioning Judah? Because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of what Judah. So it's pretty straightforward to this point. You know, we've got all these guys, Abraham, son of promise. You got Isaac, Jacob, we're all yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get to Judah. Jacob had 12 sons, right? We know that. Why it zeroes out Judah for a reason. And, and it's pretty interesting. We remember you're go, you're cruising along in Genesis and you're reading about how Joseph, Joseph is the main focus, right? He's thrown into a pit. He's thrown into a pit. His brothers all, including Judah, everybody just kind of treats him horrible. Right. And that story is about the preservation of the nation of Israel. But what it does in the middle of that story is it breaks off into this weird story about Judah. And, and, and it says that Judah's walking down the road one day. It says that Judah's walking down the road one day. And what happens? He runs into a prostitute and he can't pay her. So he gives her a ring. And then all of a sudden, pretty soon after that, his niece comes to him or not his niece, but the one that was promised to one of his sons that he didn't fulfill all the stuff comes up to him and says, Hey, this is yours. So what had happened is that he was supposed, his son was, was supposed to be given to this one Canaanite woman and he, he promised he would, but he didn't. I think he died. And then he's supposed to give it to the second son, but he was too young. He says, we'll come back later and we'll make sure that happens that you'll be connected to. So his line will go on and he didn't make good on it. And so she did her shenanigans and seduced him. And he being what he was, did that. She comes back and they have a kid. Weird, huh? Well, that's the, that's why the Bible breaks off at that point. We don't know it at this point, but they knew the, the Lord knew what was going on. So when you see the Bible, take a detour on something, God is up to something. It, now, by the way, the, God, the Bible is not prescribing that we do that. It's describing what happened. We need to know that, right? <laughs> God is sorry. He's working through our messes, right? And so that's pretty interesting. And so it, it goes on. So Judah has this child and Judah, verse three, the father of Perez and Perez and, uh, and Zerah by Tamar, right? And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. And we keep going down verse five and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now you guys remember Ruth and Boaz, right? Ruth came out by Boaz in Rahab or, or uh, Solomon in the father of Boaz and Boaz came about by Rahab and Solomon. Now remember the two, there were not two spies, but there were spies sent into Israel. And there was a woman in Jericho named Rahab. And she was a what? Prostitute. What do you know? Another prostitute. 
A lot of people in Jesus's lineage that were not of a great profession says something about Jesus reaching out to all kinds of people. Amen. And anyways, she had received mercy because she had, she had given them information. She hid the spies and all that stuff. Well, anyway, she ends up marrying one of the, one of the Israelites there and they have a kid. And that's the, that was Boaz and Boaz meets Ruth and they fall in love. And we read the old, old Testament story. Why is the story of Ruth in there? Because Ruth is in Boaz, great grandparents of King David. That's the important thing here. It's all the bloodline of the king and the eventual king. So that happens. And Boaz uh, fathered Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So there's the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Another woman who was taken advantage of there in David in what he did, right? And notice it was David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, the one he murdered. So David is a murderer. We've got all kinds of interesting people in Jesus's lineage. And so Solomon's mother, we know is Bathsheba. That's who that was. Uh, the wife of Uriah. And so verse seven and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and we go on all the way through and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And then we get to Isaiah in verse eight, which is the king of, uh, during Isaiah's time, Isaiah six, right? In the year that Isaiah king, he died in anyways, uh, verse nine and Isaiah, the father of Jotham. And then we get to Hezekiah. Now, similarly, if you guys remember it real quickly, Hezekiah's story, Hezekiah was a king and he had a bad foot disease and he was about to die. And he asked God for, to have mercy on him. And he cries out to him and God extends his life. You can read about that in second Kings 20 and he extends his life 10 years. Well, in doing so he has the most wickedest son in the world that he births during that time. His name is Manasseh. He was the worst King ever of Israel. I mean, he just was horrible in uh, 10 ways. It's just, it's horrible. And maybe you go, well, you know, if he hadn't have prayed and he had just died, he wouldn't have had this, kid. Well, guess why God extended his life? Why did he have mercy on him? Because in Hezekiah verse 10, fathered Manasseh and Manasseh fathered Amos. He's connected and Amos fathered Josiah. And we keep going all the way down to the deportation of the deport, the de- deportation of Babylon. This is Daniel's time. And then verse 12, it goes on to Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel. And, and so basically after 80 years of captivity, you've got Zerubbabel leading people back into the land. And uh, now we kind of enter into it in the time in between the old Testament and the new Testament. We, the biblical record stops, but they keep keeping the records all the way. And remember, if you get into the story, I think it's in Matthew here. Uh, uh, Herod, he tries to destroy the records because he wants to be the king. He doesn't want anybody else to be the king. And basically in 70 AD, they all do get destroyed when, when the temple is destroyed. And so Jesus is actually the only one with the rightful claim to the king. And here's the lineage here. But verse 13 talks about Zerubbabel all the way to verse 16 and father, the Joseph of, and, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus, to whom Jesus was born. Notice you say it wasn't born to Joseph. It was born to Mary. Jesus was born to Mary who is called the Christ. 
Now, again, notice that this is Joseph's lineage. Joseph was not Jesus' birth father. Birth father. And there's a lot of fascinating things in here that I left out. I know you're all thrilled with, but um, it's interesting. There's a guy in here who the Lord says, listen, no one's ever going to sit on your, on the throne. No one will ever rule who's connected to you in this lineage. I forgot his name in there. Yeah. Jeconiah. That's right. Yeah. Jeconiah. Thank you very much. Gosh, it's great to have people know the word. Amen. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Jeconiah. And, and what did we, and so God had to do a workaround because if Jesus was Joseph's son, Jesus would not be ruling because God said it's not going to happen. It's amazing. And you get to this point and it actually is just the Royal lineage on this side. It's just the adopted lineage, which is as good as being born, so to speak. But on Mary's side, he is connected. And so Luke has a lineage again, all the way back to Adam, Mary's lineage there. That's that birth claim to the throne. But what, what Matthew is establishing here uh, is that Jesus has that legal claim to be the Messiah. And so I know that this is here and we'd kind of rather skip over the first part, but it's the word of God. Amen. It's the word of God. God is so technical and so accurate and so thorough that we need to know he's got his basis covered. We don't just believe in a fictitious Jesus and he's not rooted in history and he's some weird mystical thing. No, he was a person that came about and it was prophesied for a couple thousand years prepared before the foundations of the earth wrought about through history, through all these people. They did not know what was happening to them or why they were preserved or why God intervened or why they had a child or son was preserved and all this type of stuff. And why this prophecy, prostitute had grace upon her and why David you know, was allowed to still live after doing what he did. And all this kind of stuff is because the Messiah was coming. The one who would bear all sins upon himself. The one who would not only save the Jews, but save us. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 years and from David to the deportation of Babylon were 14 years. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations, excuse me. So that's, that's the genealogy of Jesus in a nutshell rooted in history. And Matthew is starting with a shot across the bow to all the Jews and saying, I've got an airtight legal case that what I'm about to tell you is rooted in your own history. And you can't escape from it. And everything that was prophesied with him about him coming, this is him. And I'll prove it to you as we move forward. And by the way, it's his kingdom and he's bringing it and he's bringing it to you. And what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to it? It's beautiful. And so next week we are going to have Christmas in May, uh, the birth of Jesus, the newborn King. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the accuracy and the beauty of it. Thank you for the technical, the technicality of it. And just uh, how you uh, prove yourself in your word to be true over and over and over. Lord, I just, ask this morning that, that you would grant us as a, as a fellowship, as, as a group of blood bought believers, 
a greater understanding and a greater love for you. That we wouldn't just flippantly say, yeah, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus, but we would know the Jesus whom we believe. And so Lord drill into our hearts, the depth of who you are more and more every day that we would love you more fully, that we would marvel at you more deeply, that we would hang upon every word you say. We would anxiously anticipate your return and our lives would be purified accordingly. So we just ask for your blessing upon this study over the time it takes. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.